You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Isn't that an amazing video that you can take something like that and uh, just say it one way uh, and then talk about being restored and then take those same words and say it uh, backwards and it's even more powerful. So I I just love that video. It's just a great reminder of what Christ has done uh, for us. And again, from the first moment following uh, the fall of Adam and Eve, and I love that Stan referenced this this morning in the prayer, uh, that God had a plan. And from that first bite of the forbidden fruit there, Again, God had a plan, and the main focus um, of God, as recorded in the scriptures, was the restoration of mankind through Jesus Christ. God already had the plan in place. It was just a matter of it unfolding over time. And the scriptures kind of provided us kind of that blueprint of all that God did in order to accomplish our forgiveness and salvation. Now, for the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about a very familiar man in the Old Testament that God used in really a very, very small way in the bigger picture of the redemptive story. And I kind of want to look at his life and see what are some things that we can learn from this man. His name is Gideon. And his story is found in the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 6 through 8. And now before we get into the specifics of Gideon's story, let me just kind of provide for you a very quick overview of what has been happening uh, leading up to Gideon. Now, you have the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. In there, we kind of find, you know, it's the declaration, uh, the beginning of creation, the fall of mankind. You find the descendants of Adam. We have, you know, uh, the Noah and the ark. It's the forming of the nation of Israel happens there, beginning with Abraham. We have the story of Moses, you know, uh, leading the nation of Israel out of slavery uh, there in Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The receiving of the Ten Commandments. You have the formation of the Jewish law and community. And again, these are just a few of the the high points. Then once Moses kind of reaches the end of his life uh, and the end of his leadership over the nation of Israel, you have that passing of the baton from Moses to Joshua as detailed in the book named after Joshua, Joshua. And obviously, again, this is a very, very quick uh, uh, overview. Now, one of the prevailing and reoccurring themes that you find throughout those first six books of the Old Testament was that the people of God were continuously turning away from him, following, pursuing, serving, and worshiping other gods and and, um, idol worship. And they would commit sin and rebellion against God. And then there would kind of come this tipping point where God would just kind of remove his hand, um, his blessing and provisions, 
And then he would allow the nation of Israel to kind of be invaded and, and kind of conquered and enslaved by their enemies. And then things would just get so bad for the nation of Israel that eventually after they would have had enough, they cry out to God for deliverance. God raises up a deliverer, sends the deliverer there who delivers the nation of, of Israel. And this scenario or something very close to it would occur over and over and over again. The nation of Israel would um, you know, they would, they would never return to God and stay with God. They would just do it for maybe a generation or so, and then all of a sudden, you'd kind of see the same pattern. That generation would forget the lessons of the previous generation, and they would repeat the same mistakes over and over. And this just wasn't just with Moses. It's not like Moses was a bad leader or something. I mean, this even continued uh, with Joshua um, and it continues right up until the death of Joshua, which then brings us to the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges begins as the nation of Israel has entered into the promised land. They've kind of taken control of the promised land. And it's not really too long into the book of Judges that Joshua, the one who kind of led them, helped them kind of uh, take possession of the promised land, dies. And with the death of Joshua, it kind of creates almost this leadership vacuum. There, there's no one really to step in and to take over after Joshua. And with uh, that, you read these words in uh, Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. It says, after that generation died, and that was the generation of Joshua, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Now, again, this is a very, very common reoccurring pattern for the nation of Israel. Now, let me just make kind of a few observations here. The worship of Baal and the images of Ashtoreth first begin to infiltrate the nation of Israel and kind of their, their religious life at this very point. Baal was uh, a fertility god. He was uh, a god of sexuality uh, who the, the Canaanite nation um, believed enabled the earth to produce crops and people to produce children. Now, Baal worship, again, it, it, it very rooted in sexuality and sensuality, and it involved ritualistic prostitution in the temples. Now, at times... Baal, the worshiping of Baal, required human sacrifices, uh, namely the firstborn baby of, of the one making the sacrifice. So if you were barren and, and you wanted to have a family, you would kind of start that off by offering Baal a grain offering because, it, again, it, it's rooted in, in, in the 
crops. It's rooted in, in, in the producing of children. And so often what they would do is there would just be a statue of Baal and, and he would just be standing there with arms kind of stretched out and elevated downward. And then there would just be a pit with fire in front of that. And the person making the offering would take their baby and they would put the baby in the arms of this statue. And then the baby would kind of roll down into the fire. And that was the way the offering was made. Now I know to us that just sounds just barbaric. I mean, I mean we can't even imagine that kind of a, of a thing uh, in their culture, let alone something um, in, in our culture. So in, in part, the, the worship of Baal involved um, and centered around human sacrifices, namely children and babies. And like I said, while, while that is, is, is barbaric, I would equate the worship of Baal and the sacrificing of babies and children to the practice of abortion in our country. Now, abortion, again, it involves the sacrifice and the death of a baby. And, and I've talked about this um, many times. And, and the practice of abortion, it, it, is, it is termed and talked of as a sacred right. You'll hear women talk about that when they're promoting the practice of abortion in our culture, that it is a sacred right to them. They see it as a sacrament. Much of what we would look at the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sacrament. There's a religious component to that. And the same is true in abortion. When you hear them talk about that, they talk of it as a sacrament, as, as a religion. And so again, that's why it's very easy for me to, to equate what we're doing with abortion as kind of similar and, and, and in some ways barbaric in what we see in the worship of Baal there in the Old Testament. And I think it's interesting to me also that much of the sex trafficking in our country involves underage children. The latest revelations, if any of you have been following this the past week uh, from Jeffrey Epstein's client list, it's just a confirmation that many of the girls that were sexually abused by very, very powerful people were underaged girls. And that most of the powerful people were from this country. Not all of them, but many. Sadly, the United States is really the largest consumer of sex trafficking. And make no mistake, our government knows exactly who these people are. And they know what they've been doing, and they have tangible proof that would stand up in a court of law, and they have done nothing to stop or to hold these people accountable for the wicked, the immoral things they are doing to prostitute innocent children for their own sick, depraved sexual gratification. So we have agencies in our country right now, the FBI, the DOJ, just to name a few, that are empowered to protect the innocent to prosecute the guilty of these crimes against humanity. And they're doing nothing, which in my book makes them complicit in all of this. And this type of barbaric behavior is very much a part of and in keeping with the worship of Baal.
The second observation is the worship of the images of Ashtoreth. That's referred to there in Judges chapter 2, verse 13. Now again, the images of Ashtoreth refer to statues and carvings, and oftentimes it would depict a very, very revealing woman, and oftentimes a woman who was completely nude. And so those who would practice the worship of the images of Ashtaroth would find themselves involved in very perverse sexual acts and would even kind of lead to multiple forms of sexuality, meaning that, you know, a man could become a woman, a woman could become a man. This is nothing new in our culture. This is really a part of, of what was happening as people were worshiping Ashtaroth there in the um, Old Testament, that, you know, the, uh, the transgenderism. Again, you know, it was very much a part of the worship of, of Ashtaroth. And, and uh, Ashtaroth would be depicted in, in, in carvings and in statues as kind of a multi-breasted woman. If you were to do a Google search of that, what you would find with the images are, is, is, is a statue with many breast. And again, it's kind of depicting, again, the obsession that, that people had back in that time with, with women's breasts. So again, the, the, the worship of Asheroth was extremely sexual. It was very sensual, and it centered around sexual images and sexual acts. Now, just as I would equate the worship of Baal with abortion, I would equate the worship of Ashtaroth uh, to pornography in our culture today. People viewing naked bodies, nude people engaged in sexual activity or other sensual acts is exactly what the worshiping of Ashtaroth was there in the Old Testament. Now, albeit we use maybe a different medium to do that, it's essentially the same thing. And there's no question that pornography has a very powerful stronghold in our culture today. The stats on this are just mind-blowing to me. The average age of a child who views pornography for the first time is 10 years old, and 60% of them do it in their homes. Four million pornographic images and videos are viewed daily by seven to 14-year-olds here in the United States alone. 2.4 million people visit the top three porn sites in the United States every minute. As a matter of fact, one porn site receives more website traffic in the U.S. than Twitter, which I think they call X now, Instagram, TikTok, Netflix, Pinterest, and Zoom combined. A recent survey of adults in the United States found that over 90% of men, 60% of women have consumed pornography in the last month. This is essentially what I would expect the worship of the image of Ashtaroth to look like in our current culture. The United States, without a doubt, is a consumer, a worshiper, a pursuer of the goddess Ashtaroth. Make no mistake about it. And I have a point where I'm going with this. I just need to get this on the table before I make it. One last observation, when the nation of Israel turned toward pursuing and worshiping these false gods, I want you to understand it eventually spread throughout the whole nation of Israel. 
It wasn't just pockets here and there. By the time God goes to judge the nation of Israel, these sins had, had just fully just permeated the, the nation and the culture um, of Israel. I begin and beginning to wonder if the same is not true of the United States. The worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, I believe it is, it, we have reached a tipping point. I believe that it, what is true of them then is true of us now. We have fully consumed um, in the United States the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth. And again, not everybody, uh, just as it was in the nation of Israel, not everybody, but it, it had infiltrated pretty much the whole um, nation of Israel. And I believe we're at a place where it has pretty much consumed uh, the United States. Here's where I want to tie all of this back to Judges chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2, we see God's response toward the nation of Israel in their turning away from him, in their embracing, their pursuing, their worshiping uh, of Baal and Ashtaroth. Verse 14, this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. We'll come back to that in a minute. He turned them over to their enemies all around them, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. I think it is very interesting that there are some very striking parallels between what was happening to the nation of Israel then to what is happening in the United States now. I believe it is very probable that the United States is being judged by God because we, like the nation of Israel there in Judges, we have turned away from the one true God and are worshiping the pagan gods of Baal and Ashtaroth. And again, like I said, not everybody in the United States. There's always a remnant. There's always a faithful people. But enough that it has completely consumed the United States. Now again, how did God judge the nation of Israel there in Judges? It says, he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to the enemies that were all around them and they were no longer able to resist them. They couldn't stop it. They couldn't keep the raiders from coming in. Do you see what has been happening at our southern border for the last three years? God is handing this nation over to raiders. I believe God is turning the United States over to our enemies all around, and there is nothing that we are able to do to stop or to resist them. Millions of illegal raiders are pouring into this country, so much so that they are basically consuming 
the resources, the possessions of the United States in the form of welfare, health care, housing, education, free phones, plane tickets, bus tickets, etc., etc., etc. The raiders flooding into this country arrive at our borders with basically nothing but the clothes on their backs. And so when these people finally reach our borders and get inside our country, they basically have nothing. And they need everything. And it's all being paid for and given to them by the taxpayers of this nation. And I believe they are, as Judges rightly describes, they're stealing what belongs to us, they're robbing us of our possessions. And again, you can see this, leaders um, and cities all across America, whether they're being led by Democrats, Republicans, or otherwise, they're completely overwhelmed by the flood of raiders into their cities. And many of them are crying out that they no longer have the financial, physical means of taking care of all of these people. Their mayors, governors are all sounding the alarm. And they're all saying, we are at a breaking point. And they are begging the United States government to do something to stop this. But as we see, the raiders, they just keep coming and coming and coming with no end in sight. I see now hotels all across America are being turned into refugee centers. Our veterans are being displaced in order to make room for them. Encampments are popping up all over this nation to house this flood of raiders. Illegals, I see now, are going door to door in many of the neighborhoods across this nation. They're begging for money, for food, for clothing. I've seen reports of where it is believed that many third world countries are emptying out their, their prisons of the most worst criminals and they're sending them all here now. How is that going to work out? Well, we see that crime is dramatically on the rise in most major U.S. cities and I believe that will continue to eventually spread into every city. Then what? We've got drug cartels, enemy combatants, terrorists are all a part of that group of, that group of, of raiders that are pouring into our country. And most politicians seem at a loss to know what to do about it. And, and again, they're unable, uh, Judges says. The nation of Israel, they were unable to resist or to stop them. Our politicians, our government is unable to stop or to resist them. Not only have millions entered into the United States these last couple of years, they say hundreds and hundreds of thousands more are on their way. And many of these people, they're unvetted, meaning we don't know who they are, where they come from, what diseases they're bringing with them, if they have any kind of a criminal history. And you look at the people pouring across this border. Again, they're all mostly military-aged males, very few women, very few children, very few elderly. This isn't going to end well. And if you say something, certainly myself, I'm running a very high risk here of being accused, being called names. 
you do stand up and, and say anything, you run the risk of people canceling you, trying to get you fired from your job or to get the bank to close your accounts. Now, please hear me. I, I am all for a legal immigration process. Please hear that. I am all for a legal immigration process where people from other countries who want to come here, that they go through a vetted, a proper process to come into this country and become citizens of the United States. And we have such a process in place, and I'm glad for it. And I welcome any of those who go through that process, I welcome them into this country. And I believe if you want to be a part of the United States, if you want to come to this country, I believe you need to learn the language and you need to assimilate to our culture. We're not here to learn your language or to assimilate to your language or to your culture. You come here, you learn our language, and you assimilate into our culture. So I just want to get that out there. I'm all for legal immigration. That is not what is happening at the southern border right now. And there is no other country in the world that is allowing or should allow this to happen in their country. But for some reason, we have been duped into thinking that this is somehow necessary and righteous to allow in our own. And again, this is unsustainable. And there will come a tipping point in which we will no longer have a country or a country we will recognize. And we, have may, we may already be beyond that point. And I'm telling you all of this is because what you're going to find when we finally do get to Gideon, this is where Gideon was. And we can be as mad at those who are flooding across our borders as we want. And we can be as frustrated as we want with our political leaders who are doing little or nothing to try and stop this. But I want to be very, very clear. We have brought the judgment of God upon ourselves and upon this nation by turning away from him in mass and worshiping and serving other gods. So I want to be very clear. There's plenty of blame to go around. So this is just as much about us as it is about them. I thought it interesting that this Past week, we just crossed the $34 trillion debt threshold in the United States. And I see that our national debt is consuming us faster and faster and faster. And no one seems to care or have a plan of how to stop this. The bigger this gets, the faster it's going to grow. All of us know everything's gotten more expensive. Homeownership is becoming uh, unreachable for many people. The prices of grocery alone is outrageous. And I, I point all of this out because we as a nation are being fully consumed from the inside out. And we're all watching it happen. And all of us feel paralyzed to do anything to stop it. Now, I, I could go on, but I think you get my point. Things are rapidly spinning out of control. You know why I believe no one can or will be able to do anything to stop this? You can't stop God's judgment. 
Once it begins, the only one who can stop it is God. And the only way to stop the judgment of God is to repent and to turn from our wicked, evil ways. And until we repent, I can assure you, the problems in this country will only grow worse and worse. The times around us are only gonna get darker and darker. And the burdens in this country will only grow and the crisis will continue to happen one after another. And the struggles and burdens we are facing are only gonna get harder and harder the longer we wait to repent. The United States needs to repent and we will repent. Make no mistake, make no doubt about that. We're not gonna talk our way out. We're not gonna legislate our way out. We are not going to vote our way out and we are not gonna spend our way out of this. The only answer America has, the only response America has is the response the nation of Israel had and that is to repent. The question before us as a nation now is this, how bad does it have to get before we finally repent and turn to God? It took the nation of Israel there in Judges seven years. And it was only when they reached the brink of starvation did they cry out to God and repent. And once they did that, I want you to see God's response to their cries of repentance in, in Judges chapter 2, verse 16. It says, then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Now you would think the next sentence after that would be, and they all lived happily ever after. You would have thought that they learned their lesson, right? Wrong. The very next verse, yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly, and I underline that, how quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord then and now takes pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their own corrupt ways. And I underline this, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Wasn't it John Wayne who one time said, life is tough, it's even tougher when you're stupid? That's true. The nation of Israel, they were foolish in that God would deliver them but the deliverance would only last so long until the people forgot or got complacent and they would go back into their evil, wicked ways. And I see as a nation, the United States, we're not too far behind the nation of Israel in terms of our refusal 
to give up our evil practices, our stubborn ways. As a matter of fact, it oftentimes looks like we're just trying to find more and more ways to practice evil and wickedness in our country. So again, you have this reoccurring pattern I talked about there earlier. The nation of Israel rebels against God. They worship and serve false God. Judgment comes, severely punishing the people. And after the people have had enough, they repent. They cry out to God. He hears them, takes pity on them, sends a deliverer, and rescues his people. They straighten up only for a while. But eventually they once again rebel against God, pursue worship, serve pagan gods, and then once again the judgment of God falls upon the people. They cry out, God hears, sends a deliverer, rescues his people, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And that brings us to the story of Gideon. There in chapter 6. Now thankfully we are on the other side of the work of the cross, the empty tomb, God has already sent to us a deliverer, a judge, a redeemer, a savior, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who will deliver us from our enemies. He is the one who will take us from all of our trials and tribulations into victory. But just as then, now, it requires us to repent. It requires us to call on the name of the Lord, and the name of the Lord is Jesus. Now, God will use his people, as he always has and he always will, as a part of that process. But thanks be to God, he has already sent to us the one who will ultimately deliver and save us. And God will certainly, again, raise up godly men and women like he did in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament times. In the New Testament church, we will be a part of the process God uses in redeeming and restoring his people. And even though the age of judges has come and gone, I still believe there's a lot that we can learn from this very faithful man, Gideon. Now, one of the things we know from the New Testament concerning Gideon is that his story is a story about his faith in God. Hebrews chapter 11, which we kind of call the great hall of faith, lists Gideon as a, as a great man of faith. In verse 32, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson. So we know Gideon's story is a story regarding his faith in God. So let's get into Gideon's story. Gideon, or Judges chapter 6, opens with this observation. And, and again, this just goes back to what I've said leading up to this point. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They had had other judges. And there, there in verse 6, when, when we begin to start talking about Gideon as the judge over the nation of Israel, we find them in a very familiar position. They did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. Now, the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, raiders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the rest of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far as Gaza. 
They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkey. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. We can look at trains and buses full of people, too numerous to count, who are being shipped into uh, our land. It, aren't the, are the parallels striking as striking to you as they are to me? And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And again, God just simply steps back, says, okay, I'm going to let sin have its full consequence over this nation. And that's all God does, is he just steps back. Doesn't, doesn't do anything, but just steps back and just lifts off his hand of blessing, provision, and protection over the nation. I'm, I'm just going to let sin run its course. God is letting sin run its course in our nation. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And that's again where we're first introduced to Gideon. And where do we find him? Hiding. He, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now threshing wheat was typically done out in the wide open fields where, where the, the farmer uh, would, would take the, the husk of grain and they would throw it up into the air and the wind would blow uh, the, the husk um, off of that. The grain would fall to the ground. And, and Gideon is, is found hiding away in a wine press. Because again, he feared if the Midianites saw him doing this, they would come in and rob him of his wheat. So, so he's kind of hiding away and he's doing this uh, in a secret place. Now it's interesting as Gideon is threshing the wheat, an angel of the Lord appears to him in uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 12, and he says to him, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Gideon felt like a mighty warrior at that time? This angelic visitation comes at the end of a very brutal seven-year invasion. And Gideon is hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat, because he is afraid of what will happen if the Midianites see what he's doing. I would contend, I think Gideon may have felt more like a scared rabbit than a mighty warrior at that time. And so one of the takeaways for me in this exchange between the angel and Gideon is the angel sees something in Gideon that maybe Gideon really doesn't see or is aware of in himself. That in God's eyes, God sees the potential that is inside of Gideon. Even if Gideon doesn't see it himself, the angel sees the potential of who Gideon could become with God's help. It was already there within him, 
the angel just seems to kind of be identifying that and calling it forth. And we find this a lot in Scripture. Remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary there in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, and he says to her, oh, greetings, O favored one. Again, do you think Mary saw herself in that moment, in that encounter as a highly favored one? I mean, I would guess maybe not, or at least not fully. You got to remember, she's about 14, 15 years old at this time. She's a teenager. You can imagine how that phrase would have impacted Mary and, and her decision to be the mother of the Son of God. Now, if the angel had appeared to her and said, greetings, uh, oh, one barely getting by, not very inspiring. God called Abram, Abraham, father of many nations, before he ever had one child. God saw what he was going to do through Abram, so he gives him a name that indicates the mighty thing that God was going to do through him. Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, which meant rock. And Jesus said, it's upon this rock that I'm going to build my church. And oftentimes God would, would change people's names as an indicator of I'm changing uh, destinies. I'm going to impact lives. And, and he would indicate that by changing their names. You're no longer this, but now you're this. And I ask if God were to call out to you and I today, I believe God would do it in a way that would affirm your potential to him. I don't think that God would call you out by your failures, by your mistakes. I believe God would call out to you seeing the potential that exists within you in working with God's help. I remember several years ago, I was going through a very, very rough patch in my walk with the Lord, and I recall being very down. I was frustrated. I was overwhelmed. I felt worthless. And one night, I had this very, very powerful dream, and at one point, I hear the Lord call me his image bearer, and it really changed my whole outlook as a matter of fact, whenever I feel down or overwhelmed, I go back to that. And I use that dream and I, I use that, that name, my image bearer, which, which we all are. But there was just something very powerful in the very personal way that God spoke that to me. And God will do the same for each one of us. And I believe that's why he, he addresses Gideon there, that mighty warrior. And what we're going to kind of see unfold uh, in the coming weeks is how that name mighty warrior, how, how God fulfilled that in cooperation with Gideon. But you're going to have to wait till next week uh, before we can get into that. Uh, and next week, we're going to kind of pick up, we're going to kind of talk about, really get into Gideon's faith, how we see that uh, through uh, his use of, of the fleece. So with that, let's just stand this morning. Prayer of consecration, again, just invites you, if you're comfortable, just extending your hands out this morning. As again, we just make this statement of faith together, out loud. Father God,
I thank you that you are ever faithful, ever constant, and ever sure. Your faithfulness is from everlasting to everlasting. I thank you that when I am weak, you are strong on my behalf. When I am fearful, you are my peace. When I am broken, you are my healer. When I am lost, you are the way, the truth, and the life. When I am hurting, you are my rest, my comforter. When I am anxious and worried, you are my peace, my shalom. When I am persecuted, you are my shield, my defender. When I am doubtful, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When I am in need, you are my provider, my every provision. So Father God, as I go forth from this place, I thank you that you go with me. Your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Counselor, goes with me. Help me to keep my eyes upon you, my ears to hear you, my heart to love you, and my spirit attuned to your spirit. To live life in the fullness of your presence, to be confident in knowing that all things work together for good. To those who love you, and are called according to your purpose. Enable and empower me to be a faithful servant, a man, a woman after your own heart, and one who is faithful to serve your purposes in this generation. Amen.